So today is Memorial Day Sunday, and one thing about Memorial Day that always sticks with me personally is being able to hear the stories of, of people who have gone before and who have served. Uh, in fact, today is a great day for you to pick up the phone and call someone that you know that has served um, our country in the military in some capacity and, and ask them their story. Or also just um, what, this, what this holiday is about is us getting together and sharing stories and remembering those who, um, who, who gave their lives in service of our country, in defense of our freedoms and our liberties. And so it's a, it's a great time to focus on stories. And today we remember those who have gone before us, who have served to preserve our freedoms, and we are forever grateful to those. Um, and so we, we thank them and honor their memory today. A few years back, a group of us were actually, we had the opportunity to go to Gettysburg out in Pennsylvania and to learn about leadership from that key battle, that turning point of the Civil War. And when we were there, we saw, we, we learned about the big picture of the war. We learned about um, how the battle shaped out, all, all of those details. But we also heard about the individual stories. We heard stories of each of these, these groups of men who, who went and fought. And to me, I like these individual stories because it gives us a little bit more of a glimpse into the mind of the individual who was taking part in that war. Last year, I actually shared the story on Memorial Day of the 1st Minnesota Regiment, um, which I'd encourage you to look into. It's an it's a amazing story of bravery. This year, I wanted to share another story with you from that battle that I, that I came across recently, um, and then it just, it's been sticking with me since I heard it, and it's the story of the 16th Maine Regiment at that Battle of Gettysburg. Now, to understand the story, you have to understand that the Battle of Gettysburg was far from a planned event. You see, the, at that time in the Civil War, the Confederacy actually had the edge. They were driving northwards under the leadership of Robert E. Lee. They were trying to strike a devastating blow to the Union. Uh, essentially, they were trying to end the war by driving into Union land. And so you had these, this vast army of, of Confederate forces advancing northward, pushing and pushing. And you had the Union uh, trying to fend them off, trying to beat them, trying to not get defeated on their own soil. And so Gettysburg was so important because of the, the topography and because of the, just how the roads had been put in. Gettysburg became kind of this natural convergence point where, where these two armies converged on the same battlefield and on the, on the morning of July 1st, in sort of an accidental fashion, um, engaged in a battle. And that set the stage for the Confederacy trying to push, trying to take advantage of the, the tired and worn out Union troops. And while the Union troops were just trying to hold off the, the massive army that was approaching long enough for reinforcements to arrive. So they were trying to stage a defense. The Confederates were trying to take advantage of the moment. That's where the 16th Maine Regiment comes into the story. As the first corps of the Union Army was retreating towards Gettysburg and fighting off the Confederates. They, they'd been fighting for hours, and they were vastly outnumbered, and nearly 16,000 men were, were in jeopardy, um, and they, were, they could have been surrounded, they could have been outflanked. Um, many would have lost their lives. And so as they were retreating, in order to buy them time, it, it became clear that someone needed to hold off the Confederacy while the rest of the troops withdrew and staged a better defense. And that's where the 16th Maine comes into the story. They were ordered by the general uh, above them, by their commanding officer, that they were to take 
the, their ground and hold it at all costs for as long as they could. And that phrase, at all costs, they knew what that meant. At all costs means that a majority of these men were not going to walk away. So, instead of questioning their order like the, the brave men they were, they, they stood their ground, they took the ground. 275 men versus thousands of approaching Confederates. And as you might imagine, they weren't able to hold their ground long, but they held it nonetheless for as long as they could, stalling the Confederate troops just long enough for the Union to, to fortify their defenses, um, which then led them to have time to receive reinforcements and eventually win the war, uh, win that battle, and then go on to win the war. It's, it's stories like these that provide important pieces to the Union ending up winning the Civil War. So they stood their ground as long as they could, the 16th Maine, the 275 who remained, and they suffered heavy losses. And as it became clear that they were going to be captured, um, they did something that seems like a strange move. They tore up their, uh, their regimental colors, their flags, and they hid them among the men to rob the Confederates of the satisfaction of capturing their colors. This seems strange to me, and I mean, it even seems like disrespectful. I, I can't imagine doing that to a flag. But at the permission of their commanding officer, they did this because you have to understand what a flag meant to those people. Because practically speaking, in a battlefield, it's chaos. There are people everywhere. There's smoke. And, and you can't really make heads or tails of what's going on. But flags allow commanding officers, generals, to see where people are, and it allows the individual soldier to know where their regiment is, know where they should be through the smoke, through the confusion, through the, through the vast sea of people. They can see their flag and they can rally behind it. So it comes with a sense of pride and valor, but also on a more sentimental sense, it represents home. Because these were homemade flags made by the people, the, the family members they had back home that they were fighting to defend. And so, as the months went on and as they marched behind those colors and as they, they fought battle after battle, they looked upon their flag and they saw home. They saw wives, children, family members, their communities, their cities, their state. They saw what they were defending. And so to them, it was an utter disgrace for their flag to fall into enemy hands, so they ripped it up and took it with them. And of those that were captured um, and survived the war, some of them brought pieces of that flag home after the Civil War was over. Um, it's hard to find pic good pictures of it, but uh, there's actually, they're still on display in Maine, uh, in, in museums and in the Capitol, I believe. But it's just, to me, it's an amazing story of valor and courage. Um, and it's, it's amazing to me that there are so many stories like this out there. War is not something to be desired. It's not something we, we like when it happens. But out of war comes amazing stories of, like these, of bravery and courage. Because even though war is so utterly hard and, and unimaginably difficult, people fight to defend and to protect and to preserve their homes. And so on Memorial Day, we, we celebrate that. Um, and we, we honor their sacrifices. And in, in a similar way, as we are a part of a church, I mean, and we as a part of a church have our own calling. 
We have our own purpose, our own mission. And, and many places throughout Scripture, we actually see that though we are not engaged in a physical battle like that of Gettysburg or the Civil War, we are engaged in an unseen spiritual battle. A battle that takes place not in the physical realm of the world, but one that takes place in the battlefield of the heart and of the mind and of the soul. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, in the good times, it is easy to forget that there is a battle going on. Everything is going well, and we forget that we must still stand our ground and keep our guard. But in the bad times, we often see this battle more clearly. We feel it on a more personal level as we grieve tragedy, as we express frustration at the circumstances in the world, as we feel the pain of betrayal, as we struggle with our own failures, on and on the list goes. And in those moments, we see the battle a little more clearly because it's personal, because it's affecting us in a very individual way. And we see this grand spiritual war taking place. And I could talk a lot about this ongoing war, this invisible battle that we're facing. But if you do want a deeper dive into this battle, especially the battle that takes place in our hearts, uh, I would encourage you to go back to last week's sermon from Pastor Mike on 1 Peter. He gives a great analysis into this battle and, and spends some time focusing on that, that pull we have in our hearts between God's call to holiness and God's and, and our desire towards sin, that ongoing struggle that we face. I would encourage you to explore the, that sermon and the other sermons in the series on 1 Peter. Today, I wanted to just take a bite-sized aspect of this invisible battle. I want to focus on just one of the tools, or, or even, I could say, weapons that we have been given in this conflict. And we don't often think of it this way, but I'm talking about the church. I'm not talking about this building that I'm standing in right now. No, I'm talking more broadly in the sense of, of believers followers of Jesus, Christians who come together. Today, we're going to take a look at why the church is so important. To guide and anchor us today, let's begin uh, with our primary scripture passage, and that is Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. It's a good starting point for us in this discussion on the importance of the church and what it means for the church to be the church. We're going to focus primarily on verses 24 to 25, but to give us a broader context, I actually want to, to read verses uh, 19 through 25. So Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19, reads this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is the, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice at the beginning of this passage, there's that simple little word, therefore. Um, and 
As my brother-in-law and pastor Lawrence often says in his sermons when he comes across this word, this is one of the simplest tools in studying scripture, is when you, when you see a therefore, you ask the question, what's it there for? Um, simple little trick, and, and re it reminds us that a therefore statement um, is important because it signifies that something is changing, there's a summary statement coming. So usually what follows a therefore is something that you need to pay attention to what comes before and what comes after. It's the author signaling to us that an important insight is coming. Um, and in this case, nearing the end of a very complex letter. Hebrews, as a, as a letter, um, the author of Hebrews was, was quite thorough in his exploration of theology. And he provided a very in-depth look into several key points of theology. But honestly, it, it is quite confusing at times. And so, at the, at nearing the end of a complex letter, this little therefore is actually quite important because it's, kind of, it's signaling that he's about to explain the application of what he's just said and what he's just taught. In other words, he's providing us with a little bit of a cheat sheet for what's important coming out of this letter. It doesn't discount the previous chapters, but it's helping us to understand um, what he is getting at. And so, in, the, in verses 19 to 20 after this, therefore, he summarizes some of the key points that he's made previously, and he points to the simple fact that Jesus is the key to what he's talking about. It is through Jesus that we have available to us a new life. It is through Jesus that we can be holy. It is through Jesus that we have a hope in heaven. Jesus is the key. And therefore... Because of these truths about Jesus, now we should. And here, he goes on to list several different things that we, as believers, as members of the church, as Christians, should be doing. In verse 22, he says, we should confidently approach the presence of God in worship. In verse 23, he says, we should hold fast to our hope and to our beliefs without wavering. Then we come to our verses for today, which outline a third commandment, where it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. The commandment of verse 22 was encouraging us to, us to engage in our relationship with God. The commandment in verse 23 was encouraging us to engage in our hearts and our minds and strengthen that which we believe and that which we know. Now, the commandment for verse 24 to 25 turns us outwards to engage in our relationship with others in a healthy, uplifting way. And it's interesting to me how in just a few short verses, the author of Hebrews can so clearly demonstrate that it is that our relationship with God is top priority, and out of that relationship with God, we need to draw correct beliefs and correct attitudes towards others. That is a very practical implication of everything Jesus did, everything Jesus said, everything Jesus taught. And I, I like that summary. And, and so, we're just focusing on that third instruction, that third commandment that, that helps us as we as a church gather together and focus on others around us. And there's just three simple things 
out of this passage. Simple might be too. There's three things that are said here, and um, I want to highlight each of these, these different dimensions of the passage to help us understand more of what's being said. So point number one, the first dimension of this passage is that we are called to stir up one another to love and good works. That's dimension one. And honestly, I've heard this passage countless times before, and I've never really thought about what it means to stir up someone to good works and love. Some of the older translations of this passage actually use the more negatively associated word to provoke. And I want to provide a disclaimer here. I am, by no stretch of the imagination, a Greek expert. My Greek knowledge is pretty much being able to kind of read it and kind of pronounce it um, and, and pass off to anyone who doesn't know Greek that I kind of know Greek and I have a limited vocabulary. Thankfully, there are scholars out there who know much more about Greek than I do um, and can help us understand these nuances of words such as this. And in this case, to help us understand that phrase that, that lends itself to provoke or to stir up, we can look and see where else that is used in the New Testament by New Testament authors. And it's actually only used in one other text. And that's Acts 15, 39. And now I know all of you Bible experts out there are, are immediately saying, oh yeah, Acts 15, 39, I know exactly what happens there. But for the rest of us, I'm just going to summarize this, this story so that we understand the context. In Acts 15, we, we get the short story between Paul and Barnabas, the short exchange. These two had traveled together on Paul's first missionary journey. They had traveled around the Mediterranean region, planting churches, uh, encouraging believers, preaching the gospel, spreading the good news. Uh, it, was a, it was a great mission that they went on, and as they went, Paul and Barnabas also took along Barnabas's cousin, John Mark. Um, but at some point during the journey, we learn in Acts that John Mark departed and returned home to Jerusalem. We don't know why, but later we learn, in this passage in particular, that Paul wasn't happy with it. He felt that John Mark had deserted them and deserted the mission. And so as they were preparing for their second missionary journey, Together, Paul and Barnabas were, were looking for someone else to bring, and Barnabas wanted to ask John Mark to come along again. Paul was hesitant. He, and if you've read his letters, you know that Paul speaks his mind. And so this led to what Acts 15.39 says, where it says, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. This led to Paul taking Silas on his journey and Barnabas and John Mark departing on their journey. And it was the seeming end of an important and powerful and, and close-knit partnership, a friendship. So that word that describes the escalation of their argument, that describes something that caused them to split, is the same word, a phrase, used in Hebrews 10.24 for to stir up. If you think about an argument when someone is provoked or stirred up, you get the picture of someone being angry, fuming, making rash decisions. Personally, I, I picture incidents of, of road rage as an example, where something as simple as being cut off or someone going too slow or, or making a, a bad decision on the road can escalate and push someone towards their breaking point and lead to these scary incidents on the side of the road. To me, that, that is what... I picture this word as, as a very negative thing because when you are riled up, stirred up, provoked... It often does not 
actually, majority of the time, does not lead to positive outcomes. So it's interesting to me that the author of Hebrew takes this, this kind of what we could interpret as a negative word, something that we associate maybe with arguments, with, um, with turmoil, with, with bitterness, and flips it around and turns it towards not, not hatred, but towards love and compassion and good works. He's borrowing language that is, is perceived as negative and destructive, destructive such as an incident that, that separated Paul and Barnabas, and he turns it around. He redeems the word and paints a powerful picture of us stirring up one another to love and good deeds. It's an interesting picture to think about what the world would look like if instead of provoking each other towards anger and hatred and bitterness, if we provoked one another towards love and good deeds. Imagine what Facebook would be like if the content that went viral was not someone sitting in their car ranting about the injustice that they just experienced at the store or, or somewhere in the world or whatever happens, and, and the comment section being people either agreeing and saying, this is the worst thing to ever happen, we should get everybody to know about this, or, or people being angry and saying, no, you're in the wrong. Um, what if the content that went viral on social media was not that, was not anger, was not people going on um, their own personal crusade to take down something, but what if it was us stirring up love and compassion and good works among our brothers and sisters. It's an interesting picture to think about, and I think the author of Hebrews is imagining a church that is a place where we are not given to anger and hatred and and making rash decisions, but we are given to love and good deeds. That is what Jesus demonstrated in the life that he lived. So that's the first aspect of this commandment, is that we are called as a church to stir up one another toward love and good deeds. The second dimension of this, the second point, is that we are not to neglect meeting together. Churches thrive on togetherness, assembling together. If you take out interaction with one another, you are eliminating one of the, cre- the, the three critical instructions from the author of Hebrews, and I think you're also just eliminating the church. And now this, this passage has taken on an especially challenging meeting for us in our current situation. It has been over two months since we ha- have held an in-person worship service here in this room. Some have raised a good and honest question about whether or, or not us canceling in-person services is violating this commandment of Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And honestly, in preaching the sermon, I wanted to spend a lot of time answering that question. But I felt like I was saying a lot without actually saying anything. Because obviously, we as the church, the elders of the church, believe that we are not violating this commandment. Otherwise, our actions would look a lot different. Our inability to meet right now for the safety of of our members for the safety of our community does not equate with us willfully forsaking the assembly that God has given to us. And in fact, technology has given us the ability to meet safely, to encourage one another, and I know it's no replacement for what we we have when we are here in this room together, but we have not forsaken the assembly. 
But to dig a little deeper, let's look at the purpose of our gathering together, of our worship services. One purpose for our worship service gathering, as illustrated in this text, is to bring glory to God, to give him the worship and honor that he deserves. So if us gathering together dishonors or, or does not glorify God, then, then we are neglecting the commandment. Another purpose of our gathering is to enrich the spiritual lives of each person who comes through our doors. That's, that's important for us, that the people who come in don't leave without engaging with one another. They don't leave without being challenged to grow in their faith. But the purpose of the church, highlighted in Hebrews 10, 24-25, is, as we already mentioned, to spur on one another to love and good deeds, and as we will talk about in just a minute, to encourage one another. In other words, when we gather together, we are instructed and commanded to be encouraging and to be filled up in such a way that when we go out from our doors, the love of Jesus goes with us and the world notices. In an article from the Gospel Coalition released, I believe in the last week, on why the church should be considered essential, a popular discussion these days, they asked what I think should be a chilling and important question for us. Would the world notice if our churches never reopened? This was asked specifically in the context of our current situation, but I think it could be asked of any time, any church, anywhere. You see, when we look at Hebrews 10 and we think, I'm attending a worship service regularly, I'm sitting in the, the fourth row or, or whatever it is, and I am, I'm attending, I'm singing the songs, I'm listening to the sermon, sermon. And if we think that means we're obeying the commandment, and if that's it, if it's just simple participation in, in being here, then we're missing the point. What I've actually come to realize is that many of us who fill the, the seats of the church on Sunday morning when we're open are still disobeying Hebrews chapter 10. Why? Because we view the worship service wrong. We view it not as an opportunity to bring glory to God, not as an opportunity to encourage other people toward the life that Jesus wants them to live, not an opportunity for us to deepen and enrich our faith, but we view it as an opportunity to make ourselves feel good. We view it as a, as a social outing. We view it as somewhere where we can feel like we belong, and, we, and it stops there. We... we we make ourselves feel like we're in control to check something off the list. And I'm using the word we here very intentionally because I find myself in this same sort of rut often. I would say I have violated this commandment in Hebrews chapter 10 before. Not because I wasn't in church on a Sunday. In fact, I've, there's very few Sundays I've, I've missed in my lifetime being raised in, as, the, as the son of a pastor and, and being involved in ministry for over the last six years, there are very few Sundays where I'm not in a church. But I would say that I have often neglected the assembly of believers, the church, because my heart was not engaged. So that, that brings me back to the question, would the world notice if our churches never reopened? More specifically, would the city of Chaska, would Eastern Carver County, notice if Valley Free never reopened our doors? I hope that answer, the answer to that question is a resounding, of course they would notice. 
But this is something we have to ask. And we have to be honest. Because if the answer is no, then I think that means that we are failing our, our call, the commandment of Hebrews chapter 10. We are failing to make Christ known in the community. If the answer is no, then we are not glorifying God. We are not the light of the world, the city on a hill that cannot be hidden like Jesus instructed us to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. When we reopen, whenever that may be, I hope and pray that each and every one of us would come to this building not just to participate in a worship service for an hour and 15 minutes and then leave unchanged. but to participate in the gathering together of believers that changes us and sends us out overflowing with the love and joy that comes only from God. That we would be sent out as a clear light in our community that the world would notice. If we want the church to be considered essential in our community, and in our state. We can't demand to be given that title. We must demonstrate to our community that we truly are essential. I think that's what it means for us to not neglect meeting together, to not neglect certainly engaging with other believers, but more importantly, why we engage with other believers. That brings me to point number three, the, the third dimension of the Hebrews 10 passage, and that is the call to encourage one another. Because when we come together, we are called to be encouragers. We are called to do what seems like the simple thing, but something that is oh so complicated. When I preached last time um, on Palm Sunday, I spoke about one of my character flaws, and that is that I really like um, and am drawn towards achievement. One of the reasons for this, that this is actually a flaw is because that although encouragement and uplifting words mean a lot to me as an individual, like that is something that I crave and I, I long for people to encourage and, and uplift me, I am extraordinarily bad at giving encouragement to others. Often internally, when I see someone else succeed or do a good job at something that I am also trying to succeed and do a good job at, but I'm having difficulty with, I don't think, oh, congratulations, that's amazing that you did it, good job. I often think, oh, they must have cut some corners to do that. Or, oh, they, they've been working at that longer. And thankfully, these are th thoughts that cross my mind and don't often leave my mouth. But to me, this, this simple struggle that I have personally points out an issue of my heart and a sin that is still clawing for control. Pride and, and jealousy and envy. Those are the enemies of encouragement. And so you see, it, it, if we are engaged in a spiritual war where, where sin is at war with holiness within us, then we are going to struggle to encourage one another as we are called to do. Perhaps that's why the author of Hebrews in verse 22 reminds us that Jesus has made it possible for us to draw near to God with, as he says, a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
This is absolutely why the, the author of Hebrews points us to this first before telling us that we are called to encourage one another because we must deal with the issues within our own heart and that can only be done through the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it can be done in community. So if we are to encourage and uplift others, our hearts must be changed. Discouraging others is, is easy. It's easy to throw a quick jab at someone, to lash out, to, to lob a sarcastic response to a question, or, or just to deflate someone with a simple word, to pour water over someone's enthusiasm. All of this can be done in seconds. And in seconds, our words can be oh so destructive. James 3, verses 5 through 6 says, The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Our mouths, our tongues, are, our words can be destructive. But our words also can bring life. Our words can encourage. Our words can uplift with a pure heart, with, with a heart that is devoted to following what God calls us to do. We can encourage each other as we go through dark days. We can encourage each other as we wrestle with loss. We can encourage each other towards actions that are honoring God instead of actions that are honoring ourselves. We are called to be people of encouragement. Therefore, let us encourage other people. Let us encourage one another. And thankfully, that is something that does not have to happen here on a Sunday morning. In fact, it should happen throughout our week. We should be encouraging the other members of our church, but we should let that encouragement flow out into our communities. We should be people of encouragement everywhere we go, no matter when, no matter where. The author of Hebrews concludes verses 24 to 25 and this, this, this summary section as well with this little, this little phrase where he adds, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the day that, that he is talking about is the return of Jesus. That glorious day when he will come again, will come back for his people, he will bring to completion the work that he is doing in the world, he will usher in God's kingdom once and for all. A new heaven, a new earth will be brought to us and it will be the day when that spiritual war that has been raging on for, since the beginning will be brought to its final end. Evil is defeated and good will reign. That day, though we do not know when it is, is always drawing closer. Therefore, as we await that day, we don't just wait passively. We don't just sit around and, and wait for Jesus to come and get us. No, we have been given a task to draw near to God, to hold firmly to our beliefs, and to continually encourage one another in faith towards love towards good deeds, not towards what is easy, but to that which is hard, because it is worth it. It is a weapon that we have in the spiritual war 
that we can fight with as we wait. This is our calling, it's our mission, it's our hope. That is how we can be the church. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy to get overwhelmed by things that are going on in our personal worlds and in the world at large. We see sin, we see chaos, anger, confusion. And we know that these are just reflections of the spiritual war that has been raging on since the beginning. Since sin entered the world, since, um, since the spiritual war began, we've seen the consequences. We see the consequences in our world and in our own lives. But you have given us the church. You've given us a place to belong, a place to have community, and a place where we can mutually encourage one another to not give up, to hold firmly to our beliefs, to worship and praise you and bring you glory as we wait for Jesus to come again. We ask that you would continually strengthen us when it's hard. That you would give us the source of our encouragement so that we can be people of encouragement. And Lord, we long for the day when we can gather together again in this room and worship together in person. But even more so, we long for the day when Jesus returns and makes all things new. That is the hope that will never fade. That is the eternal. And that is what we look forward to. So Lord, strengthen and encourage us through this present trouble, through the troubles that will come until the day that Jesus returns. That day is drawing near and we anxiously await. It's in your great and powerful name we pray. Amen.